0: Storytelling brings the passions of my guests to life through our conversations. So be prepared to be entertained, informed, and inspired. Welcome to today's show. Well, hi, everybody, and thank you for joining me again today on my Born to Talk radio show podcast. It means a lot to me to have your continual support. My guest today is Dr. Joel Bryant. He is the author of The New Being. Preparing for the emergence of a new humanity. Welcome to the show, Joel. Thanks for having me, Marsh.
1: I'm glad to be here.
0: Me too. I am I'm delighted and we've had an opportunity to speak a little bit prior to the show today and every conversation that you and I have ever had has been so engaging and you are you are a wonderful human being and I, I'm really delighted to share this microphone with you today. And before we go into our subject, which is about what you do, I think that it's only fitting to recognize today Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Day. And I was just wondering, what influences has he had on your life?
1: Well, for me, I think he is is what virtue embodies. In my mind, he's the greatest American that's ever produced on American soil. He's mm-hmm. just for us. He's simple, well, but he raised a standard that you know we can't straddle, we can't strangle. It's perennial and right. it's
0: permanent. Yes, so he, the you know, quotes. Oh my gosh, the quotes about what this man has left is just so stunning. And all over social media today, people are posting their favorite Dr. King quotes. And I just wanted to read one um, Joel, before we start talking about your your background is one that I think is so significant for our week, and that is, so in the days ahead, let us not sink into the quicksands of violence, rather, let us stand on the high ground of love and non injury and I hope. And pray that that is exactly what will happen this week. Now, with that in mind, let's get to know you. Let's let's share a little bit about your background because it's a pretty remarkable background. So, tell us a little bit about yourself, please.
1: Well, I am. Um, you know, I'm a former corporate trainer professionally. That was my profession, a corporate trainer. Um, then I kind of walked away from that and started trying to go to school formal education, and um, ended up going to school and, you know, getting some education and writing a lot of books along the way. We really just reinvented my life. We reinvented myself because I had a vision for better. How Hmm.
0: How many books have you written? I have written
1: 55 and have published about 35, I think. Gosh, where do you call home? I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm originally from a small town called Lumberton, a little a small town. Um, mm-hmm. But moved to when I
0: was
1: about 11 years old, have been here ever since. So it's where I call home. I love it.
0: Yes. There's something so charming about where you live. And you have, a, you have an extensive um, education, don't you? I, I, you're a humble man, so you're not going to tell people this unless I'm going to ask. So I'm going to ask. Tell us a little bit about your education.
1: Well, I mean, I went to school late in life. You know, I didn't think I was college material, as they say, when I got out of high school. So I kind of bounced around and worked and tried to, you know, figure out who I was. But I went to school at 35, and I got my B.A. at 40. It was kind of a boring experience. I swore I would never go back to college again. But I went back a couple years later, got a master's degree, and I taught at the university Um, for five years. And I quit in 2008 when I got my doctorate degree in educational leadership. So all of my education came late in life. I think I finished my degree at 50, started at 35, and I finished at 51.
0: Do you know how many people – I would say that the the, the demographics of the people that listen to my show every week are probably under the age of 35. I would say the majority of the people that listen to my show are – probably over the age of 40 or 45. And for you to say that you decided at age 35 to go and get your education and not just stop at 40, but continue and to actually get your your doctorate of education, that's that's pretty impressive. And I would imagine I'm just picturing you sitting in a classroom with all these young young students, and what they must have got not only from their instructors, but what they must have got from you personally as a leader, as somebody that had already been in the world of entrepreneurship. Uh, I would think that that expertise and experience was very important in not only having you learn from the instructors, but having your cohorts learn from you. I think that that, and maybe somebody's listening today that says, whoa, you know, I know I can't really go to the university physically right now, but maybe this is something I would like to consider doing. And I know that you do leadership coaching and consulting. In fact, why don't I just mention really quickly right now, for those of you listening, um, Joel does have a great website. And you can find him at D R Joel, that's J O E L Bryant, B R Y A N T dot W doctor D R Joel Bryant dot webs dot com. And you can see all of the different things that Joel does. But today we're going to be speaking particularly about writing. And everyone that I've had on my show, and I've had a lot of writers in the last few months, they all have their own story, Joel. And so what I'd like Mm -hmm. to know from you is when did you decide to become a writer? I think
1: it was more of an an evolution and not a decision. I think some people, they kind of know and they make that decision early in life and they just, you know, they make that declaration out of that decision. For me, it was an evolution. You know, when I was a child, I wrote poetry like probably most children. And then, of course, I stopped. And then when I got my B.A. when I was going to get to college, they made us keep a journal. And so I would keep a journal only because I had to get a grade. And then once I finished, I stopped, stopped journaling. But I've always found myself just returning back to writing. And I think back back in like 1990 and 91, I realized, hey, Joel, you are a writer. And once I recognized that, then my evolution accelerated my evolution has more direction and more determination behind it. it took me some hmm. time to just own the label of a writer.
0: You know, so here's the question I asked my guest last week. And so I'm going to ask you that same question. So you mentioned okay. the fact that you, that you journaled. She actually kept a diary, this woman, from the age of 8 to 25, that she actually wrote wow. in everything. I know. It was incredible. Um, Natalie S- S- Stinson was her, na- is her name. Anyway, when you when you wrote in your journal and once you actually began to start writing, did you paper to pen paper, uh, pen to p- uh, paper, or were you just on the keyboard and and writing on a word document or something?
1: No, I love the feeling. Well, you know, I love them equally. But back uh-huh. then, I loved the idea of having a pen in my hand and touching real paper. And so, you know, my first couple of books were all written, transferred from my journal because I loved the actual contact with the paper. There was something surreal and sublime about putting that pen on that paper and watching letters form, and those letters became ideas, and ideas became concepts. Yeah. So that is how, that's how I, that was my.
0: Yeah, that's that's honestly, that's what she said as well. So this is just really random, but I'm going to ask you this because I asked her the same question. I must be doing a survey now. When you wrote in your journals, <laughs> seriously, I, I feel like I want to just put this out there in the world. I'm asking people this question all the time now. When you wrote in your journal, did you print or did you use cursive?
1: Cursive. Print is too slow for me. You know, print is really? Too slow. I mean, I, I had good handwriting back then. Like, I used to have really good penmanship because I used uh-huh. to practice my penmanship. I went to school during a time where your penmanship was an expression of your character based on their, their worldview. So I, I, I really love penmanship. But as I found, you know, unless it was curs- cursive was too slow, and now I find person too slow, now I have to type. Like I, don't, I don't like to even write by hand anymore.
0: <laughs> the reason that I asked is because the only thing other than to sign my signature, which I can barely read, mm-hmm. I don't do anything in cursive or penmanship, as you said. And yes, we were absolutely graded in that back in the day when we were in school. Everything I do is printed. But what's really weird about that is that I, I think I learned this printing technique from my dad. And so mm-hmm. all of my printing is uppercase. And when I want to print something that begins a sentence, that uppercase letter for the is the T is just taller than the uppercase H. But I, I right. find myself so right now as I'm I'm taking some notes about you, my friend, trust me, uh it it's all in uppercase i just think it's so fun okay that's just a side note people are going to get tired of me asking this question every week but i'm and the survey says you know it's like that tv show all right so back to you my friend so who are some of your biggest influences um or writers that you admired when you were growing up and, and up to today frankly
1: I think most of the people I admire, I mean, I don't really, I, hate to say, I haven't really read many contemporary writers. You know, I've read a few. But I think there's something about the so called classics where these people took art as worship, expression of their faith or their fidelity or their awareness of something transcendent. And so the way they wrote, it was something. That's why they're classics. They're, it's not just their ideas. It's, it's the way they, it's, it's their syntax, it's their sentence structure, it's the words that they use. So for me, people like Ralph Waldo Emerson, I would say without a shadow of a doubt, he has had the greatest influence on my writing life and my real life, how I see the world, how I move through the world. But people like Emerson, um, a guy named Soren Kierkegaard, um, Danish philosopher slash theologian, um, Nietzsche, uh, you know, Schopenhauer, know, German philosopher, you know. And even Dr. King, when I read Strength to Love, I mean, I really began to mimic those styles until I found my own
0: voice. Mm-hmm. Well, I can tell you this. For anyone that picks up your new book, the latest, The New Being, your style of writing and your vocabulary is off the Chart. It is truly, it is, it is, it is remarkable how you write, and I I so recommend that people um, pick up this book, and it's it's pretty easy to, to 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 find, and in fact, I would just like to let people know that if they do visit your website. They can order this book right off your website, which I know now is always what we want to recommend people to do. Sure, you can go to Amazon, but why not give all the money to the author as opposed to a chunk to Amazon? So I I do think that your style of writing is is pretty pretty remarkable, my friend. So well, let would be you... one
1: person? Uh, and I forgot to mention, of course, in my mind the greatest person to use words ever, bar none, would be have to be Shakespeare. Nobody that I've ever, and I've read, you know, uh, I've read for the last 35 years every day. When I read Shakespeare, I am, when I first read Shakespeare, I used to get discouraged. Because I'm thinking him and Emerson, between those two guys, there's nothing that I could say in a way that would be engaging because these two guys have said everything in a way that is, I mean, the way they use language is is unreal, and so Shakespeare, of course, is somebody I studied to
0: this day. Is there a favorite Shakespeare that you like? Something uh, that you
1: yeah, that... Hamlet, King Lear, gosh, I was supposed to say Hamlet, King Lear, Macbeth, some of the sonnets. I mean, to this day, I watch Julius Caesar. I mean, I lay in bed at night and I. Read Shakespeare, and I remember passages, extensive passages from his plays, and also language is so beautiful. I hmm.
0: you make me think of something when you said Shakespeare. Um. And I guess what I'm wondering is, because they were so eloquently written, and you are so eloquently spoken, did you ever perform? Did you ever get on stage? and and perform?
1: Absolutely not. <laughs> I was all throughout my life, I have been profoundly introverted and, dare I say, scared of crowds. I mean, in my early life. Now I'm not too much scared of anything now. But in my early life, I remember when I was in high school and in, in an advanced placement English class. And I could not, I almost failed the class and did not graduate because I could not get in front of the class and give wow. a 15-minute report on a British poet. I was like, I'm not getting in front of those people. So I never performed. I, I always hid in the background, and, you know, I just couldn't do something like that. So I've had to evolve into becoming
0: who I am now. Well, you know. It's been a, it's been a journey. I, it, well, and isn't it for all of us? Who Some of us could never have imagined where we were in our life 60 years ago and where we are today in our lives. I mean, I was just thinking you you said that, oh, my God, I could never do that. Have, just out of curiosity, have you ever done a TED Talk?
1: No, I haven't. I haven't. I think all those things on the horizon. What I've done, Marcia, is I've spent the last 25 years in obscurity developing my ability. You know, we live in a society now where everybody wants to be an overnight one. We have a lot of, in my mind, a lot of ill-prepared and, and people who are not thorough, they're not finished. Because in the society now, we have a disposable, I won't say greatness, we have disposable performers. Hmm. But there's something about greatness that, that suggests longevity. And you can't rush greatness. You have to take your time. And so I've spent the last 25 years just sitting in obscurity, developing my character and my competence and my social intelligence. And so now I've made a decision that this is my last book that I've just done for a couple of years, and now I'm going to get in the social fray and help to sort of um, moderate the social debate on some, a, lot of, a lot of issues that are important and pressing.
0: Well, and that's great. And, and you know, I know that I'm, I'm looking um, at your website, and, you know, people, people can actually get all kinds of, of, of helpful information from you. I could see you being on I I because of how you speak, because of how you hold yourself. I could see you at some point being on a on a stage and sharing your greatness because I know that I I still say that you're a humble man. There there's no doubt about that. But I do think that you have an important message to share and um we're living in some pretty turbulent times right now and you know i think that people gain from listening to others and then engaging with others and so if you if you're you know if you're not going to write for a little bit but you can somehow engage with others in a variety of ways i my goodness technology has so changed the way we do everything you know i mean just mm-hmm. zoom alone has just changed the world but I do you still consider? I'm just curious. Do you still consider yourself an introvert?
1: I am an introvert in my personal life, but I have no problem right now getting in front of X amount of people without without a script, without anything, and I can get in front of thirty thousand people right now without any preparation and speak because I've like I for the last twenty five years developing my competence. when You develop your competence, you increase your competence. When you increase your confidence, you change your compass and your coordinates. And you can't help but eventually drift into the social stream where you will begin to be someone that's be known as, as we say today, a thought leader. So no, when I so when I'm in my personal life, yes, I like to be by myself. I would really like to socialize a lot. Don't want to go to a lot of you know social events, mm-hmm. but when it's time to do what I need to do for my my purpose, there's no shame and no shyness at all about what I what I do.
0: Nothing Wonderful. Else. That's that's great. So, you know, when we talk about writers, how has your regard for these writers that you've just mentioned changed from, where, from when you started until who you are now?
1: Well, I think like anything, right, anybody who's serious, you go from admiration when you go from awe at first because you've never seen anybody do things that way. So you go from all to admiration, and then you go from admiration to emulation. And so my so and so now, like Emerson, you know, I I've, I've been able to draw from him the things that enhance my ability to write. So I still regard those people, Emerson, Shakespeare, the people I mentioned. But now my goal is emulation. I don't mean copying them. I mean stamping my greatness, writing in such a way that my words have an immortal tint and an immortal bent to them. You know, Shakespeare said he had had, Cleopatra say um, in in one of her speeches, she says, I have immortal longings in me. It's the desire to transcend time that gives your work an enduring quality, whatever your work is, whether it's sports, whether it's music, whether it's painting, it's the desire to transcend time and space and those limits. That give your work an immortal quality. And so that's what I have strove for in my development.
0: That's great. So with with everything that we do in life, what are some of the biggest challenges that you face once you decided that this is what you were going to do? Because <laughs> <Getting laughs> we all ending. have them, Joel, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> the biggest challenge for any
1: artist, right, or any business person or any entrepreneur is how to keep the lights on and buy groceries. You know, Hmm. Thoreau said this, way. Henry David Thoreau said in his essay, well, his book, Walton, but especially like our principle, he said, why can't we get our living by our loving? In other words, why can't I live off my talent? So that was my biggest challenge. You know, when I was working as a corporate trainer and doing really, really well, but it wasn't my calling. I didn't want to do it anymore. I didn't care about how well it paid and all the perks I got. And so little by little, I began to prepare myself mentally to take the leap into being a writer. So the biggest thing was, how do I feed myself, my, and my, you know, my, my wife at the time I was married? How do I, how do I feed her and feed us and feed my soul? Mm-hmm. Because I was dying. So that was my biggest challenge, my immediate challenge. And then after that, I had to learn how to write. This is one thing to want to be a writer, but to actually know how to write—that's a whole nother game. And I, I did not know how to write. So those are my two, my two biggest immediate challenges.
0: Yeah, to want to write—it's another thing to know how to write. And I guess that, that therein lies a journey. So how did you make that transition?
1: Worked on my, well, uh, economically, I, you know, I, well, actually, I, I, actually, when I quit my job, uh, I think I quit my job October 2nd of 2000, and uh, a year later, right, with the week of 9-11, we ended up homeless. Spent all I spent every dime I had, 401k, everything I had, all the money we had, I spent it trying to sustain myself while I developed the ability to write. And wow. so, you know, we ended up homeless, you know. And, but, but, the, but the irony of that is that the book that I wrote before I quit, I wrote a book called Work, Why, Diary of a Dreamer. And that book won me $10,000 uh, maybe a year or two after after we were homeless. So I took that money. but So that was the biggest challenge. It's like how do you feed yourself? And then how do you know that you can't write? Because a lot of people in this generation, for me, Marsha, what I see people call greatness, I just call it popularity. You just call it the wave of something that's gonna fizzle out. Because when you talk about greatness, when you talk about mastery, when you talk about excellence, when you talk about those kind of superlatives, those things take time. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that 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 that, that, that money that I want for that book, I was able to get on our feet, get us another place to stay. Then I took another job, but I, would, but I would never take a job that I couldn't do in four hours. Wow. I had to work eight hours. Most of my jobs were like sales jobs or management jobs. I would never take a job that I couldn't do in four hours because the other four were going to be dedicated to writing. I was going to sit at work and write my book, and that's what I was able to do. You have to use, see, to be a writer or to be successful or to be a, a fulfill your, fulfill your dreams, You've got to use every platform to transform yourself because you're going to always be starting here. Wherever here is, you can only start here. and You can only start now. Mm-hmm. So that's what I was able to do in terms of professional. And then writing, I wrote every day. There every was, I didn't day. watch television. Mm-hmm. Every, when Michael Jordan stopped playing basketball, I stopped watching sports. <laughs>
0: I wrote every <laughs> single day of my life. Wow. So the first book was called For Dreamers, Joel. Was that the first book? No, actually, my first book was called Journey Towards Greatness. Journey Towards
1: Greatness. And it greatness. really is, it is Journey Towards Greatness. I think I published that book back in 95 or maybe 99. I don't remember now, but that was my first book. And it's just a – it talks about how do you develop the infrastructure, the emotional infrastructure for greatness. Because a lot of times it's easy to build a physical structure. It's easy to build the technological structure. But how do you build the emotional structure to be able to handle what I call the weight of greatness? Once you get on, once you hit, once you get discovered, once you get renowned and you get prominence, do you have the character and the competence to bear the weight of greatness? And so that's what that book talks about is how do you develop that emotional infrastructure to handle greatness?
0: I'm presuming that book is still available, right?
1: Yes, they're all on my website. Um,
0: like oh, I, I see said, it, I mean, Joel. I, mean, I do see it. I yeah. see it as, as a beautiful and that's my first um, uh, Beautiful um, waterfall on it. That's lovely. Wow, so that must have been pretty shocking to go from, what did they you know you see hear here rags to riches in some case i guess in your case it went riches to rags if you went from having wealth to being homeless how how long did you, how long did you live that way before you were able to get back on track and be able to support yourself and um and have an income with cuz that book is what got you there correct yeah i think it was more and i haven't
1: been been a wealthy person financially but I've been wealthy emotionally. And so, you know, my, like, let me just say this. And I, and I, took, and I took the role seriously. When I, when, I, when I read books, I don't read books to collect knowledge. I read books to, to educate my perceptions, to change my life. When I read that essay, Life Without Principle, and Getting Our Living by Our Loving, I was determined to be able to write, I uh, use my communi- my communication skills in a way that mattered to me to make money. And so it took me about we were homeless for about three months. Okay. And then when I wanted that money, got a place to stay, and then I got another job as a marketing manager. And I like I said, I knew I could do the job in a while, so I took the job and I did that. Then I told my I said, I'm going to teach college. I said, I don't want to do any more corporate stuff. It's boring. It's good pay, but there's no soul pay. And so I went and, got my, I went and got my master's. I think I did my master's in about a year because now by this time I'm hyper, hyper focused. Right. I, I have a vision. I have a strategy. I have a goal. And so, you know, I, I went to the university. And before I graduated, the guy offered me a job. He was actually hmm. chair of the philosophy department. I was in this class. He offered me a job. And so for the last 20 years were varying degrees of success and setbacks, if you will, I remember when I came back to Charlotte back in 2015 after my wife passed, I I was sweeping the floor for $10 an hour. And I had had published, I had 30 published books at that time and an article in a prestigious peer-reviewed journal. And I was sweeping the floor for $10 an hour. And you know what? I'm happier doing that than I've ever been doing some corporate job with a nice salary. Hmm. Because the thing I had to learn, Marsha, I had to learn gratitude. I was a very ungrateful person. Wow! So it's not just, you know, people say success is not about what you get; it's about who you become in the journey. And I can say for me, that has been the journey who I've become. You know, and and that that's that's been that's been very gratifying for me. Yes, you know,
0: I, I'm I'm. I wish I could write as fast as you're giving out what you're saying. And and what I just heard in my own head was I remember my dad used to say, he used to use the term pearls of wisdom. And I feel like a necklace is so long on your pearls of wisdom that perhaps I just need to make a couple of notes that you and I can talk about off the air, like what does success mean to you and what does greatness mean to you and why do you read. And um, you, you are so interesting and you are so transparent and you are so authentic. And people know that. You, you can't pretend that stuff. If if you're if you're that's when people you hear the term people talking out out of both sides of their mouth. I'm saying one thing, but clearly if you're looking at me, you know I'm meaning something else. And so often, Joel, when I do these shows, in an effort to stay uber focused on what you're saying, and then trying to take notes so that I can get those you know pearls of wisdom, um, I'm I'm losing something, which is like we do in this yoga practice, to just breathe in and just take in the mindfulness and the messages that that you're giving. I, I just, I just think it's just tremendous how, when someone when someone is listening to us. How do you think that? And maybe you can't. Maybe I don't know. Maybe maybe rather than put yourself in somebody else's shoes, let me just put. Let me ask you this. Let me ask it to you this way. Was there a moment when you just knew you wanted to be a writer? Like a defining moment or was that something that just happened with you gradually?
1: I think it, it I think there was a build up. There was uh, you know there was a sort of a gradual build up. But when I got the idea for Journey Towards Greatness, you know, it's like this is what I want to do. Because when I'm writing the joy and the pleasure that I get from writing. It's like I'm plugged into the socket of the universe, and my whole being is animated and it's, it's vitalized. And so I just had to make a decision to honor that, not to allow the contingencies and the what ifs and the whatabouts and the howabouts and all that stuff that stops a lot of people. I just said, you know what, if I don't do this, I'm going to die. And it was that real for me.
0: Wow. Do you miss teaching? Say that again. Do you miss teaching? I, I, yes,
1: because when I was teaching, I would teach for free. I mean, every time I used to get my check when I was working at uh, UNC Charlotte, I felt like I was stealing from the state. Mm-hmm. You know, you give me three classes or four classes with 35 students who are hungry and eager, and it's my job to create an atmosphere. To call forth their greatness, and we get to talk about philosophy and and you know and and, and you know the, the great ideas upon which society is built. So yes, I miss that, you know, I miss that. I loved doing that, and we'll and we'll do it again. I will do it again.
0: Hmm. I could see where students, and not only students, I'm just thinking about your audience, frankly, right now. Not only could I see students really gathering from you, but I could see other educators. I could. I, I, I'm. I'm thinking about in my own life, in my own family. My son and daughter-in-law both work for the University of Arizona. She's in the pharma, She's actually not pharmaceutical now. She's public health. But my son is um, in the Eller Business College. And with the way people can Zoom and the way people can do technology today, I would think that you getting in front of an audience where you don't have to even get on a plane and just (laughs) speaking to others, you know, I mean, it is, in trying to think of anything that's positive about this isolation, which is not my favorite, um, there is that beauty of the technology that has um, evolved because you mentioned evolvement earlier today. And that evolvement mm-hmm. of being able to share your experiences and like you said, I mean, you aren't I don't sense there's an I, I said you were humble, I wasn't kidding. And you are you you just you have so much inside you and and it's just it's just a wonderful thing to talk to somebody that not only has an idea but they're 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 doing their ideas. And not everybody gets to do that. Some people have great idea ideas but they don't ever get to put it into into process into actually mm-hmm. doing it. I I didn't intend to be a podcaster or a broadcaster. I I had no no vision of anything like that happening in my life. But here I am you know in april it'll be 6 years and wow i know and 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 i come with with what experience people my experience is people i, I, I this is ai am i'm i'm taking a side sides you for just a moment today today before the show i decided let me get outside it's a beautiful day here today the sun is shining let mm-hmm. me just take in some of this sun. I'm holding my mask. I'm prepared to put it on at any moment. I'm walking basically in the middle of the street where there's no cars really coming, but I'm mindful. And what do I notice that this gentleman walking a beautiful black standard poodle? It's huge. It's wow. a standard, right? He's on my mm-hmm. left. Up ahead of me on my right is a woman walking a magnificent differently groomed, I'm going to presume, female, standard poodle. And I thought, oh. what? What what just happened here? So I'm looking at her, and I'm pointing to the right. I'm looking at him. I'm pointing to the left, and I'm going, oh, my goodness. And so what happened? Of course, one crossed the street and said, and they they're masked, and they said, can my dog say hi to your dog? and i'm thinking this is what i love about being outdoors this is mm-hmm. what i love about mm-hmm. humanity this is what i love about connections because that would not have happened sitting in front of my computer also wouldn't have happened with me sitting in front of a book i for marsha i'm speaking specific, specifically for me i need that that is my gasoline that's what fills me up That's what makes me say, oh, gosh, I love living here. Oh, and look at you. I know you. I recognize your beagle. Don't you live on the other street over there? Sometimes you don't recognize people were masked. It's like, which one are you in? It's like, oh, yeah. I think that, I don't know, I think that there's a lot to be said for getting together with others. And you, my friend, um, have quite the message so, back to your writing and your influencers, and you. So, if you had to just pick a book, what would you say that the book that you mentioned earlier was was your greatest influencer? The break, the one of the you know, one of the greatest <laughs> I, books you read. I,
1: I, I would say anything by Emerson, I, but I would recommend every adult, right? Because I'm 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 like I'm amazed at the number of people. Who are who are adults, but are codependent. But
0: does that They don't that trust mean to their you? own
1: judgment. Mm-hmm. Well, because they don't trust their own judgment. I was talking to I was coaching a client today, so we're coaching. She says, and we know we've been on the phone about it. And this is now, now this is my like first time, so you know I don't I haven't I haven't you know loosened her up at all. So we've been on the phone about forty five minutes, and she says, Well, Joel, do you think I could publish my book? I said, Do I think you could? I said, No, you can't publish your book. I said, Your book is trash. And I haven't even read it. I said, I could tell it's trash just by, you know, that's just a sense I get. I said, Remember? And I gave her my credentials. I said, You should forget publishing. And she said, But why would you say that? I said, Why would you ask that? I said, You don't ask other people's permission uh, about your greatness. I said, You should ask me, What are the steps to publishing? What would you recommend for an editor? What would you recommend for me to read to enhance my right? I said, but don't you ever ask another human being to analyze your, to give you permission to be great. So what I would recommend for every every adult needs to read self-reliance. It's an essay by Emerson. It is, that essay is to the person what the Declaration of Independence is to our nation. Because if you don't have self-reliance, you won't you won't do you won't you won't obey the impulse to do something different. You'll go around get approval from people that you're really seeking permission. And so that's that's what I when I read self-reliance, it totally, totally, totally changed my life. Everything wow. in my life at that time, I walked I was I walked away from it. That wasn't serving me. I didn't care. I mean, that's how real it was for me because I didn't realize how happy, how I had become codependent. You know, when I was younger, as as a young adult, a young man, a teenager, I never... You know the things that teenagers do? I never did that stuff. I didn't care about drinking or smoking, and they could call me names and peer pressure. I didn't care. I loved basketball. Mm-hmm. And they could call me any name they wanted to. I still shot basketball, and not, not for a team. But as I got in my middle 20s, I became codependent. And so when I read self-reliance, it it brought me back to my baseline. So that that, that essay is, is actually an essay in Emerson's first series of essays.
0: Okay. Self-reliance,
1: every adult needs to read that essay.
0: Terrific. Thank you. I'll make sure I include that when I do our <laughs> follow-up, because that's pretty cool. But what we I haven't get excited talking talk about Emerson. <laughs> I know you do. I mean, I can feel it. And here we are. We got like, you know, 20 minutes left and we haven't even started talking about your book so let's spend some time now in this last segment okay. together so the name of your book as I mentioned earlier is, is the new being preparing for the emergence of a new humanity tell, tell, tell us a little bit about this book
1: well in a nutshell I'm saying in this book that we will have to change our negative narratives about human nature you know we have this narrative that's rooted in religion. That human nature is corrupt, and it's you know it's it well not only corrupt it's incorrigible. So it's not only corrupt; it can't change. And then we use we use the behavior of a few, relatively speaking, right? The behavior of a few people to reinforce the verdict that human nature is wicked and it can't change. And what I'm saying in this book is human nature is what we make it. It it expresses the conditions and the expectations that we that we put on it. And a simple example. You know, you take a coach with a team that went 1-15 in 15 last year, get a different coach, same players, that coach brings in a new system, a new expectation, a new atmosphere, a new ethos, and all of a sudden that's a winning team. So what I'm saying in this book is we've got to, we got to address the narratives that annul the possibility that human beings can change. We have a capacity for immensity. Every human being has that, despite their lifestyle. No matter how much money Oprah Winfrey has, she can do more. She can do better. And I'm just using that on, on, on the social level.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But human nature can change because it's all, all it represents is what we create conditions that allow it to express itself. And basically, Marsha, condi- because of our view of human nature, all of our systems are designed to oppress and repress human beings. Because we believe if you don't watch it, it will go crazy. And that's not true. That's just not true. That, that's simply not true historically. When you look at the number of people on this planet and how many, let me say this. Um, I asked a cop one day. I said, here in this city, Charlotte, very big city, we, we, you know, we, have a, we I said, how can you be a cop? He said, what do you mean? I said, and I was testing him. I said, people are crazy. I said, and, I, and I began to name all the things. He, he said, son, because was an older guy, he said, most people obey the law. He said, if people were as crazy as the news would have you think, he said, we could not police this city because there's not enough of us. He said, most people are law-abiding. Now, you take that just on a legal level, on a social level. So we began to, so, so in this book, I address race, religion, education, politics, economics, and morality. And I talk about how those systems reflect our negative judgment about human nature, but more importantly, I will show you how it can change, how we can change human nature, how we can change our expectation. So that's a little bit long winded, but that's really what the book is about, no. and we're going to have to do it.
0: Yeah, there has to be a desire, that's for sure. And people like yourself that are talking about this, you know, I, I feel like I, I feel like I I want to be a promoter. It's like, you know, who what who do we Who's on Who's Who's on Network News? You know, where's Lester Holt talking to you, and where's you know <laughs> uh, what's his face, uh, John Muir? Is that is that that guy's name on Seven? I don't know. You know, it just seems like you should be. We should be hearing people like yourself speak, even if it's just a short segment. It, it's thought provoking and um, and hopeful. And um, when you when you wrote that book, was there a specific inspiration that came to you that said, hey, I know what this new book is going to be about? Was there something that really inspired you? Because I don't know, when did you write it, Joel? Because I know it's volume it, one. It took
1: me about three years. I started back in Ooh. early 2017 and I worked on that book, I worked on this book 12 hours a day, every day for three years.
0: And wow. actually
1: I was, writing, I was writing another book um, which I haven't published, called, called Beyond the American Mind. I was writing that book, and I was saying, this is my last book. I've been writing for 20-something years, nonstop. I'm just going to stop and just you know, watch TV and do crazy stuff because I don't watch television. So I'm writing this book, the book that I was finishing up, and I'm reading another book. And I'd read this book. I read this book twice a year, and I'm reading the same book that I've read twice a year, and I read this sentence, and the sentence says this. It's by, it's by a um, French philosopher. Her name is Simone Weil, W-E-I-L. The book is called um, Waiting on God. I read this sentence, and this is a sentence. It said, the absence of finality proves the reign of necessity. Fact, and I'm translating, the fact that nothing's finished means that more is possible. The absence of finality proves the reign of necessity. We not only can do more, we have to do more. And when I read that, Marsha, I grabbed my journal, and I think I wrote 40 pages. And I said, you know what? I'm not writing another book, so I'm going to twist these words and twist these thoughts. I'm going to make it fit the book that I was just finishing. But the more I did that, the more the chapter started coming to me. And it ended up being, you know, hmm. uh, almost 800 pages, so I had to make it two volumes. But that Whoa. sentence gripped me, and I, and I had read that. I had read. I read that book twice a year, just because it's so good to me. But that sentence really, and I, I find it, I find it crazy when I see it sometimes, because I haven't. I look at. I say, Joel, you read one sentence, and that one sentence put put produced a, produce a two volume book. Wow. And see, let me just say this, Marcia, here's, here's, here's part of human folly. Human folly, human beings practice, and rightly so to some extent, we practice reductionism. We create a narrative that omits things that don't serve our goals, our aims, and our interests. And so everything outside of our purview, we say, don't exist. And just like this virus has caused unprecedented changes. There's gonna be some other events. And these events are being advanced by evolution. No committee getting together and saying, hey, let's do this. You know, no, no, this is being advanced by evolution. Why? Because human beings have got to evolve. And the way you evolve, the manifestation of evolve of evolution, is you have a higher consciousness. You have richer perceptions. You have a broader perspective. You have what I call in the book, you have a sense of transcendence. You're able to get over yourself. Hmm. You know, you're not so atomistic and i So, but that's what the book talks about. And that, that particular sentence is what inspired um, this book.
0: Wow. Say it one more time for people that are listening.
1: Okay. The absence of necessity. Excuse me, excuse me. The
0: absence of finality. Of finality.
1: The fact that nothing is finished. The absence of finality proves the reign of necessity. Nothing is finished. Right. Human being is and only one type of being.
0: True. And the word you used was range, correct? R-A-N-G-E.
1: Reign. R-E-I-G-N rule. Oh. Rule.
0: The reign. Thank you. Thank you for correcting you know how, that. You know
1: how people say that necessity is the mother of invention?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We're all under a necessity. We, we, right now, let me just say this, we uh, succinctly, we are all under uh, an ontological necessity. The word ontology has to do with being. And we don't change. My, my favorite quote from King, he said this, Americans must learn to live together as brothers or they're going to die together as fools. And I'm going to tell you this, with the level of consciousness that we have in this country on all sides, there is no way we can live together. Not with our current consciousness that, we, that people are functioning from. Arguments are not going to change our society. What's going to change our society is changed people. People who are not, like you said, people who are authentic, to be authentic means I'm not auditioning. Mm-hmm. I'm not, My life is not an audition. I'm too old to audition. I'm. A, that's why I can be authentic. I can be organic. I can be integrated. Cause I'm not auditioning, trying to get to the next level. Right. So it's important to be recognized. And Einstein said it this way, right? You can't solve a problem at the same level of consciousness that created the problem. That's what we're doing. That's why we don't have any movement on our social issues.
0: huh. Mm-hmm. I told people they were going to be in for a treat. I wasn't kidding. <laughs> <laughs> My gosh. My gosh. I, I, You know, I feel like I'm taking a master class. And fortunately, you know, these are all recorded shows. So there are people that were, will be listening to this live, Joel. And then there will be people that will go back and re-listen at their convenience. And they can start. They can stop. My shows are on every single podcast platform there is. It's not just from my website. My Born to Talk radio show is on every podcast out there, from iTunes to Google Play to Stitcher to iHeart to Spotify. Wherever people listen to podcasts, they're Mm -hmm. able to listen to this show. And I think this is going to be one of those shows that people are going to go, Whoa, I need to, wait, I need to play that part back again. I need to hear what he said about that, not to mention why this book seems like something everybody should be owning themselves, as I do. If you were going to give some advice to a beginning writer, and do you call yourselves writers as opposed to authors? I guess that's a, that's a distinction, isn't it? What do you, what would, what, well, the, what, the
1: word author is short for authority. Because if you see, it, you know, when you write, you just kind of write, and you're inspired, and you write, or you're not inspired, and you write. But when you're an author, when you people, when people, when people use the, when people use the designation author, that means that whatever the topic is about, they have become an authority because you have to do a lot of research, and that's why writers know a lot about everything. Because you know, if I'm going to write, to to write this book, which I didn't, wasn't write it, but I have spent mm-hmm. the last 25 years, and I just say this: reading, you know. You know, because I don't have anything else to do with my life, I spent the last 25 years reading five to 10 books a week, because I didn't know what else to do with my time. I can't, I, mean, I can't play basketball, you know, and I don't have much of a life, social life by choice. So, if you're going to be a writer, you have to be a reader. And when you're a reader, if you're going to do, if you're going to do the topic justice, then you have to become an authority on the uh, topic. And that's why the term, the term author denotes a person who has as, as a Supposed expertise in what they're writing about You know but I don't really Personally I don't make that distinction Because I'll be honest with you There's too much to know
0: <laughs>
1: To be an authority To be an expert as far as I'm concerned There's too much to know Wow People that claim that they're all this and that They haven't been to the library lately You know They, 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 they have stayed in a narrow stream Of their thoughts so if you want to be a writer, you've got to read. Read the best books. I remember this lady gave me some really good advice. I did, when I did this first book, Journey Towards Greatness, mm-hmm. and she brought, she gave it back to me, and she, and she was a professor at a college here in North Carolina, and it had red marks everywhere. Like there was every page was just I – said, I said, what's wrong with my stuff? She said, Joel. She said, you're breaking all the rules of grammar. I said, so what? I read you know, I read this person, this person, this person, and they break the rules. She said, Joel, the way they break the rules, people know they know the rules. The way you break the rules, they know that you'll know what you're doing. They break them in the right place. You're all over the place. Mm-hmm. And so I started reading, I mean, I started reading grammar books, you know. Mm-hmm. Then I started reading the great writers who really saw writing as a craft, they didn't just have a topic, because today people have topics. They don't really have a lot of these writers don't have craftsmanship to their writing, because everybody's in a hurry to get discovered, you know. And they put it out, and they you know. So I think if you're going to be a writer, read everything you can. Listen to wow. people. Listen to pe- how people talk. Listen to their, their inflection, their tonality, their volume, their rate of speech, the words they use. You know, those are the kind of things that will enrich you. And you will be able to use those things in ways that you don't recognize at the time that you're doing it.
0: I feel like this has been a master class um, out of curiosity, well, I think you said that so you will be releasing Volume two at some point, correct?
1: Probably in another year or so, near two because uh-huh. I really want this book to um you know, I've written, I've written, like I've written, I've spent so much time writing that I never really have tried to market my books mm-hmm. because I'm, like, I'm a, like, I love writing and I didn't do it so, for the money per se. But right. with this book, I'm going to respect this book enough to give it a chance to be known in the marketplace. Wonderful. So I'll probably won't release volume two till another couple of years. Great. Even though it's written already. So I mean, I've already finished and got it here in the house, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to release it.
0: Mhm. So, inquiring minds want to know. So you mentioned that you loved playing basketball. You mentioned that you don't watch television, and I know that about you. Um. So what do you, what do you do when you're not working and you just want to have some fun time? What does fun look like to you?
1: Well, my favorite thing. I mean, I play tennis. I've taken up tennis. I really love tennis. Uh, it's fun. Um. I like, I like, like, I love watching people, which has been kind of hard um, with the COVID at first, but now it's loosening up. But I love watching people. I love going, sitting in the mall and watching people, or going in downtown of Charlotte and watching people. And honestly, even though I'm an introvert, I love meeting people who have good conversation mm. because I learn a lot from talking to people. So, playing, playing tennis, I love walking. You know, um, like I said, watching people. Um, those are probably my three. And music, of course, music. And honestly, I've just discovered TikTok a week or so ago,
0: and <laughs> I have spent
1: too much of my time.
0: When I first discovered TikTok,
1: I was on that thing for eight hours.
0: Oh, God.
1: It's so, it's, it's, I, so I've become addicted to TikTok now.
0: Oh, you are funny. You are f- you are so funny. That that is that's so breaks the curve of of what my perception of TikTok is. That's that's right. That's a riot. One thing that I know when you and I spoke, you know, this was off the air, but we talked about what the word trust means, and I thought that mm-hmm. you. Like I said, this this pearl necklace is longer than – it's going to be a whole book. I don't even know what I'm going to write about this show because you've said so many remarkable things. But I do like what you say about what the word trust means, and I thought you could share that.
1: Yes, um, I came up with an acronym for trust about 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. And trust is simply total reliance upon something – transcendent the unseen sustains what we can't see the invisible makes the visible possible without the invisible nothing that we can nothing that has materialized would be here I have so I've had to learn and if you're going to have a successful life when I mean successful you're going to enjoy your you're going to enjoy your journey you've got to learn to trust and particularly now Marsha people are people are anxious Increases. I mean, we've seen a significant increase in uh, mental uh, depression and mental health issues because people have anxiety about the future, which means they don't know how to trust.
0: Right. And without trust,
1: you're going to betray yourself.
0: Oh, I know. And there is incredible uncertainty. Just, just being, you know, a parent with two children maybe an elementary school and middle school or high school, and you're working from home and your spouse is working from home and your kid is trying to understand how to do their core. I have a friend that teaches kindergarten and just keeping a five-year-old engaged on a Zoom class to learn your colors, to learn (laughs) how to, you know, there is so, truly, you know, there is so much circulating right now, so much. And that's why just before this show and i t- i told you earlier that i got outside to take that walk and there were those two beautiful black gorgeous standard poodles that now were saying hello to each other for the first time i'm sure the people spoke as well but you know to me you know you've used a lot of words that are just tremendous and i think that we would probably both agree that balance is so vital to well let me just speak for myself balance is so vital to my to my well-being that mm-hmm. out of balance causes anxiety it causes your heart maybe to beat a little quicker and i'm saying you but i mean mine right and exactly well, i do and and that's why i've i've I have, that's why i have brought that yoga practice into my life if for no other reason is to learn how to get those shoulders down where they belong not up as mm-hmm. earrings mhm mhm and Ooh. your enjo- you know your enjoyment of the written word is so obvious by the way you speak i uh, it's just
1: but i'm not a bookworm though i want to say i'm not a bookworm People think that about me. I mean, I'll be—I'll tell you honestly—if I could be anything, I wanted to be right now in this life. Uh, my oh, number man. one choice, of course, would be a professional ball player, right? But my number two choice would be like to be a rapper. You know, I know you rap- would music. not. I mean, I don't like what it stands for, but I love—I love, I love the—I love the bravado, I love the bravura, I love the culture. I don't like the stupidity, but I love how these guys and girls can put so much energy in a three or four minute song. I, I, I find it I find it compelling just to listen to rap and study it. So that's really what I like. I mean, you know, that's really my I'd be a rapper.
0: Oh God, you know, we got to the end of the show and people are going, What did he just say? Did he just <laughs> say he wanted to be a professional basketball player if he could and a rapper? Well no wonder you like TikTok. But um a rapper? <laughs> well, because isn't, isn't rapping poetry? Didn't we start the very first of this show when you talked about how much you enjoyed poetry as a child? It's one of the first notes I wrote.
1: You see, the thing That's about rap that people don't understand, it is a cultural critique. Because think about it, right? Historically and contemporarily, you can say stuff in art form that if it was a speech would get you locked up. Art is, one of those, art, is, art is a medium, and it's a space that has some degree of license, you know, and it depends upon how the artist, you know, how the rapper uses it. So that's what I like about it. When you just listen to the music and you're not really listening to what's going on, you miss the cultural critique that's contained in those lyrics, and it's just entertaining. Mm-hmm. So that's why I like that. I mean, I, I, I love, and I love the exaggeration. Nobody's, nobody's doing what those guys are talking about. They're not doing that stuff. <laughs> It's so exaggerated, but I like that, the exaggeration.
0: That's great. I'm just, I'm I'm visualizing you on your balcony with your favorite rapper in the background, and you just moving <laughs> along, and your arms are out, and the sun's coming in, and you're going, yeah, I can feel this. I mean, I am just like, that is just like I, a I have vision. no I'm rhythm, have though,
1: to, Marcia. I have
0: no rhythm. No, come on. <laughs> so, Wouldn't you know, be much moving you, around. I have no rhythm. <laughs> Okay, so you just have to sit in a chair and move your head back and forth. Yeah, I can do that.
1: I can do (laughs) that.
0: Oh, my gosh. What a great way to end this show. This has been a joy. I knew it would be. And I, I'm going to take the pressure off of myself of thinking I can recapture all of this in the, written, in the written words because I can't. People, you need to go buy the book. People, you need to listen to this show. This might be a show you want to listen to several times. But let me just say to you, my friend, and you are my friend, thank you so very much for joining me today. This has been an honor.
1: Thank you, Marsha. I appreciate it. Thank you so much.
0: My pleasure, all right, everybody. So when one show stops, you know next week i 'm going to have another show, and i 'm having two local women that are members of the Biona Creek Renaissance, which is a wetlands here not far from my house and we 're going to be talking about the great work that both Deborah and Sandrine are doing, but that 's next week, but for now. I wish you my hand space, my, my hands are going to my heart. Namaste to everyone listening. Have a safe week. Be well. And thank you very much once again for, for joining me on this Born to Talk radio show. This has been a pleasure. Bye for now, everybody.